it's gross, but so is the whole thing of like, even the manager accepting the trophy, like the, the, sorry, the owner, that is disgusting to me. You did not earn this. You own it, quote unquote, like financially and on paper, but you don't own any more of this team than that young kid climbing the lamppost on Young Street does. That Somali kid that knows their stats, knows their families, like knows of them, knows everything about them. That to me is an owner of the team. Welcome to the Edge of Sports Podcast. I'm Dave Zirin. Our guest this week is Toronto-based sports writer and co-host of the Burn It Down podcast, Shireen Ahmed, who has just returned from France, where she was covering the beginning of the Women's World Cup. She's also from Toronto, where I think there's been some sports news over the last week or so. Also, I've got some choice words about the singing of the national anthem and Megan Rapinoe. Uh, Women's World Cup star for the United States. I've also got Just Stand Up and Just Sit Down awards and more. But first, Shireen Ahmed. I actually flipped a coin as to what I was going to ask you about first because I didn't know whether to ask you about Toronto or the Women's World Cup. Um, You know what? I can't believe that I was in France. Never in my life would I have thought that a World Cup would be interrupted by basketball but like this week for me was a rough one because I missed game five completely I was just so jet lagged because I was up for like 40 hours and Mm -hmm. then slept through but I woke up three o'clock in the morning I watched it I celebrated Jess was beside me and I couldn't scream because she was sleeping and um it was incredible it was just like but I'm so glad I'm home. I'm going to the parade on Monday, and I'm really excited about that. That's awesome. So that would be my first question is, uh, what's the mood like in Toronto right now? Well, I was on the outside. Like, from what I saw, like, everywhere across the greater Toronto area, it was, like, sheer madness. Mm-hmm. Like, madness in terms of joy. I Toronto Football Club did win a championship, but it was nowhere on the level of this. Yeah, this the is last time, the level. The last time, yeah, the last time... Toronto did this was when the Jays won in 92, 93. And a lot of the supporters were not born yet. I mean, I think some of the players on the Raptors weren't born yet. Mm -hmm. So like it was a long time. Yeah. Yeah. I don't even know if Pascal Siakam was alive. Mm -hmm. So it's like, it's just, it's incredible. It's very well-deserved like the whole country. And I think everyone's right now really frustrated with what happened to, um, um, Oh my God, Usai! Oh God, I can't even remember his name. I'm blanking. Oh, Usai Ujiri. Oh, yeah. Usai Ujiri. Like what happened to him? Like people are really upset about that shit. Like Oakland police, like fuck them. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like the guy didn't have his badge, and then Kyle Lowry literally had to be like, "Oh no, come on the court." He's the GM, so people are angry about that. But there's a lot of happiness. I also think that <coughs> this parade is going to be lit going to be incredible like i'm pulling my kids out of school i'm like we're going to the parade there's no way that like as a responsible parent i would expect my children to be in class yeah that's one of the questions i was going to ask you is what happened with messiah jerry has that penetrated the the news cycle over there in in toronto because it's a big story here in dc and there's a lot lot of anger Mm-hmm. A lot of people are really, really upset, and it basically comes down to, and I was listening to a bit of a commentary from Rachel Nichols, and she had said that she has seen this thing before, but it was never, it had never resulted in charges. 
Like mm-hmm. she had seen like, you know, officials cause they like, they just want to get down to the court. They want to like, you know, when they want to be down there, they want to be celebrating. It's like, it's not a joke. It's the championship. And it was prevented from doing that for a very clear reason. Mm-hmm. Um, Usai doesn't look like he could be the manager. No one would think he could be the manager. When I say no one, I mean like white Oakland cops. Mm-hmm. They wouldn't expect that he would be the manager because he is black. And that is a painful reminder of even in the happiest moments, we can't have joy. Mm. It's brutal. So that it sucks. And we're like, I mean, that will not, that will not distract us from being happy, but it's a a very, very staunch reminder of the reality. Mm. And I mean, I don't think Masai Ujiri has made any official statement about this yet. Has he? No, the Raptors said that they look forward to resolving the matter. Um, I think it's beneath him to comment on it. And I'm really glad he's not, to be very honest with you. I'm glad the Raptors PR is handling this. Let Masai Ujiri focus on being a champion. I mean, I will tell you that in the beginning of the year, there was a lot of emotion about DeRozan leaving. There was. like He took a big leap. He took a big risk, and it paid off. And, I mean, that's pretty much what that is. Like, we are all reaping the rewards of his decisions. So, I mean, and there's rumors that people want him to come. I've heard rumors that Washington, like the Wizards are basically saying, we want... Kawhi, we want Masai, we want everybody. Mm-hmm. But like, but I mean, then you know, no offense, but that's kind of where they are right now. So, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's true. No, it's true. Like they want to offer Masai part ownership of the team. They do, and that doesn't surprise me. And I'm not judging because Toronto's definitely been there before. And I mean, this is a long time coming. Like so much. Part of the joy for me about this is so much of the euphoria was from youth, and. The one thing I will say, like, we should start recording at some point. Oh, we're recording. Oh, we are. One of the things that really made me happy about this celebration was it was a lot of youth. Youth that have waited their whole lives. Youth that actually get to go to games. You did not see this replicated in the actual TV, like, panning of, like, the Scotiabank Arena or an Oracle, where at this point in the playoffs, youth can't access the matches because, like, the games, sorry, because they're, like, they're like $60,000 a ticket. But this whole year, it wasn't the white businessmen that were in the stand. It wasn't the corporate folks who got tickets to go and have never cared about Kawhi Leonard, who have never followed him, who don't know Pascal Siakam's story, who do not know that Serge Ibaka can answer questions in the press room in three different languages and is beautiful and has this cool cooking show that I really want to be on. Nobody... Nobody knows about that. They don't know about that. But now that, I mean, I'm not saying that if you don't follow basketball, you can't share in the joy. No, of course you can. But, like, let's just remember that this was about the purity of the game and how everybody loves the Raptors. Like, you got aunties in different communities, older, like, elders that are out there. I had a friend, Ryan McMahon, who's an Indigenous comedian who was sharing what We the North is, like, in Ojibwe. Like, it was really, really cool. Wow, that's amazing. The, the, the other issue, Masai Ujiri, the other issue that paints uh, a, a sort of a shadow over what's happening is something, uh, maybe not, it's not nearly as widespread in terms of people talking about it, but the idea that well, one of the uh, managing partners of the team, Larry Tannenbaum, has pledged to take the team to Israel in the aftermath. I had to get your immediate response to that as I begin to accumulate 
people's takes on this? Well, I think that the one thing I did mention, and you actually reminded me of this in a tweet, you you shared the fact that Kyle Lowry had actually called out Trump's Muslim ban as bullshit. And he did this very, very early on. And to be very honest with you, like much like solid um, solidarity we see from like other players, we saw from Brianna Stewart, we saw from the WNBA, we saw from LeBron James talking about this. This wouldn't have affected Kyle Lowry immediately. It wouldn't have, but he did still talk about it. So this particular team, including Marcus Gasol, who spent postseason last year in the Mediterranean, saving refugees who were like drowning at sea. You've got Serge Ibaka who's talked about it. You've got Pascal Siakam who talks about it, like who talk about issues that are bigger than basketball. I mean, one of the things that Kawhi Leonard talks about in his pressers is that it has to be a, a sincere decision. I mean, some of the things that he's, ta- he's talked about, and don't get me wrong, I've loved San Antonio for a long time, that he talks about making decisions that's good for him. And Kyle Lowry also talking about his children. And when he was asked what pressure is, Kyle Lowry talked about his mother being a single mom, having a hustle. That's pressure. So, like, my point is these teams and both of them, Steve Kerr being who he is, having a father that was pro-Palestine, you know, Steph Curry, like talking, uh, Dave playing down from Under Armour saying, I'm not going to support this if this is what you do. These are players and teams that are very socially conscious. So as far as Israel goes, I think there'll be a huge movement even within Toronto, because I know Jewish Voice of Peace had sort of urged before game six that you people should support the gold, like the Golden State Warriors, but it's not that cut and dry. Also, athletes have a choice. No one's going to be dragging Kyle Lowry to go to Palestine. Like, it's not, that's not going to happen. And it doesn't work that way. Like, we've seen professional athletes say no. Michael Bennett said no very famously and actually ha- ended up influencing a lot of the team. They didn't go when they won the NFL championship. So it's, it's gross. But so is the whole thing of, like, even the manager accepting the trophy, like, the, the, sorry, the owner. That is disgusting to me. You did not earn this. You own it, quote, unquote, like, financially and on paper. But you don't own any more of this team than that young kid climbing the lamppost on Young Street does. That Somali kid that knows their stats, knows their families, like knows of them, knows everything about them. That to me is an owner of the team. Absolutely. And that, that's probably my least favorite ritual in all of sports. When the person you've probably never seen, unless they're particularly loathsome, like a Jerry Jones or a Bob Clark Kraft, like that they're the ones holding up the trophy before any player gets to touch it. Yeah, yeah, it is. It's really particularly gross because, to be very honest with you, all those young fans and all the old fans, like all the fans, can name you the players, can name you the bench, because we have a very, very deep bench. I'm very proud of the Raptors, but have no idea who the owner is. And for me, that's fine. Like, he gets no credit in this. Like, you own them on paper. That means you have money. But it also points back to who really technically owns this team. The Raptors have made it explicitly clear despite that one ceremonial ritual of the hand him the trophy. No, this team belongs, they belong to themselves and they belong to their fans. And that's what's so, so beautiful. And they reiterated, I didn't see that little white man after the first one minute of his trophy. I didn't see him again. And I don't think I will. And I didn't know who he was until I have people start sending me uh, tweets and texts, like putting up the bat signal, like he wants to take the team to Israel. You know, (laughs) I'm just like, yeah, I think I I tagged you in that. Yeah, I know. I tagged you in that too. And I didn't even know about that till I saw the Jewish voice of peace and another writer I know who's Palestinian, Rowan, she had tweeted that she's going to support Golden State. 
And I was like, well, you don't have to. Like, it's mm-hmm. not that cut and dry. You don't have to give up on the Raptors because, I mean, like I said, I find it very hard to believe that the team would just sort of just go along. And for the owner to say something like this and sort of speak, give them no agency in this process is also really disgusting and telltale of who he is. No, absolutely. And we'll see who goes. We'll see if he pushes it. We'll see all these things. It'll determine what we do as activists and journalists next. Um, Oh, yeah. I I have to ask you, like I said, I flipped a coin before you came on here. And I was like, all right, do we go Toronto or do we go uh, World Cup? Uh, Toronto came up tails, so that's where we started. But this is what I'm really eager to ask you about. You just got back from France. How was it? Where did you go? What did you see? Okay, so I started off in Paris. I was invited by Diversity House, which is a initiative of FAIR, the FAIR Network, which uh, combats homophobia, racism, misogyny in football, to talk about hijab in football and the Fédération Française du football, so the FFF, which currently still bans hijab in France. So I was very honored that they invited me. And also, I think it's a really opportune time to have this discussion. Well, although we're celebrating and loving women's football, there's this clear, clear, egregious ban happening still in that country. So although I have like a Mayu, a, a kit of France, and I'm supporting that team after Canada, um, I'm still really angry at that country, that the way that they're treating marginalized and racialized communities. Um, so I started off in Paris and then I, my trusty sidekick who I was sort of shadowing as well, Jessica Luther, um, she and I like took off to Reims to go see us and Thailand. So we just we were supposed to hop on a train, but all the train tickets were sold out because all the Americans were there. Like, and I, every American in France was probably in the halls, in my opinion, like everywhere. Like it was, the streets were People in, and when we, we got out of the hotel to walk towards the stadium because Jessica's a believer in walking, which was really exhausting for me, but whatever. <laughs> um, like, she, we were like walking and we stopped to, of course, see the beautiful cathedral in Reims, the Notre Dame Cathedral, where Joan of Arc had once been. And I really wanted to see that. There were people with those big Uncle Sam hats mm. in like red, white, and blue. Like, it was, it was gross to me. <laughs> um, it was just gross. I was just like, I feel like I need to like shower mm-hmm. or do something. I ended up just eating gelato, which was perfectly fine. <laughs> but I was like walking. There was so many Dave. Like it was just so overwhelming. And I literally, I walked Jessica to the media, like, you know, the media entrance where she got in. I didn't, excuse me. I didn't have media cred like for this, uh, like media credentials for this match. So I just thought I was going to buy a ticket and like hop in or whatever. But it, that didn't happen. And I really think God Almighty saved me from being in a stadium with almost 20,000 people. And I, when I was there, I saw maybe 12 Thai fans. Wow. So, and I counted them and I was like going to say to them, like, do you have an extra ticket? Cause I will happily go in with you and like, and sit with you and cheer for you because this is a, this is not Thailand's first appearance at a world cup, but I, I knew it would be bad. I did not know the result would be 13, nothing like that made my heart hurt in a lot of different ways. And there's a lot of discussion about this ensuing. Like, don't, I love joy. Of course I love joy. I absolutely love joy. I was fine. Well, not fine, but when Germany beat Brazil like 7-1 in the last World Cup, I remember exactly where I was. I was in a train coming back from Montreal. And I remember I was just like, that's a lot. But 13, scoring after the 75th minute for me, it became explicitly clear it wasn't about football anymore it was about personal achievement 
And it was about, you know, getting on the board. And that to me was problematic. Like I really don't think a nine nothing or an eight nothing would have made the US look less bad. And the argument is what are they gonna do? Pass the ball around for 15 minutes? Well, they're a creative team. I'm sure they could come up with some plan. Like I'm sure they can do something. Like not be disrespectful to the other team and just stop playing, but you don't have to hit the back of the net. You mm-hmm. don't. Do you I think, was Oh sorry, go uh, ahead. Sorry. No, we don't go ahead. I think do you think there's some um something to be said for the rules that put goal differential in this round as part of a tiebreaker. I mean, that's something that a lot of people were saying that, you know, that it's incentivized to score as many goals as possible. When you're already up eight, nothing, it really doesn't matter at that point. Like the goal differential is like literally eight, nothing like in that group, us wasn't severely challenged. They were not. And I mean, they're going to play Sweden next. It'll be a tougher ride than Thailand, but like, it's still not going to be difficult in that sense. And I mean, there was some discussion about, oh, if U.S. just throws the game to Sweden, then they don't have to face France. Because, I mean, they'll face France earlier than expected. So and I'll go ahead. <clears throat> yeah, no, they'll face, they'll possibly face France earlier than expected. Um, I think the U.S. did what the U.S. was taught to do. Um, and I mean, in fairness, the Canadian women's hockey team was blasted for the same thing. Like they beat a team like eight, nothing worlds a couple of years ago. And, you know, I had the same, I'm not going to be like, I'm not going to lie about it and say that I didn't have the same issue. I did. I think those, those numbers running that high are a problem. I think that there's a way to maneuver and that's Jill Ellis's job. If she knows the opponents are that weak, she can come up with a plan of lesser attack for the second half of the second half. Like that's their jobs is to understand. Yes, Alex Morgan's job is to put the ball at the back of the net, but this is also a conscientious job. We're given a choice. You're given a choice to finish or not. Yeah, you I, can do other things. I just find I find your take really interesting on this because I mean I don't know if you heard about some of the terms of the debate back here, but um, any of us who 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 made the similar points that you made were saying things like, well, wait a minute, you're trying to police their joy. You would never make this kind of comment if it was men playing and not women. And I, I wasn't thrilled with that response to it because I do think something needs to be said about sportsmanship, about the United States, about the U.S. role in funding against um, other countries that don't nearly have those kinds of resources. Um, but did, did that, did the terms of the debate, did those terms make it across the pond to you where people were talking about that? Oh, yeah. I mean, I ended up spending a lot of time with uh, Steph Yang of SB Nation and Meg Lyonen of The Athletic, who I love. I love them both dearly. And we, uh, you know, are friends and we had dinner together and we hung out. And um, I know that their take is different than mine. And but this argument, if you wouldn't do this for the men, no, I would do this for the men. I think any type of score like this is not great. And what I didn't like is the deflective nature of people saying what's really the problem of FIFA. A lot of people forgot to mention the AFC. And I really want to make that clear in this conversation that the Asian Football Confederation is just as culpable as FIFA. They're a horrible organization that doesn't do shit for women's football in that region. And I'm not just talking about what's going on in Afghanistan. I'm not just talking about all those things. They do not advocate for their players. And this doesn't mean that it's FIFA's fault. The score being 13-0 gives us an idea of the disparity in development in different countries for sure. But to say that we shouldn't blame the women, we should blame FIFA, we should we should always blame FIFA. Don't get me wrong. 
I want to blame FIFA for everything, but I think there's a certain amount of culpability here from the women's team. There is realization getting scored on 13 nothing is demoralizing. And yes, Carly Lloyd went to the keeper afterwards and told her to keep her chin up. That means Carly Lloyd is a nice human, but that bar is really low. Like just to be a nice human, like I just, Carly Lloyd also scored on her on the 70, 87 minute. But I know for Carly Lloyd, there's a lot of other things happening. She's, she's a bench player now and she wants to show that she can still finish. Seven, 87th minute against a team that there was already losing 12, nothing like, okay, like bring it up a notch. Like score against Sweden in the first 13 minutes, and then I'll, you know, I mean, I'm not criticizing her per se. Well, I kind of am, but the reality is, is that I think that letting the U.S. women off the hook for this is is not okay. And there's a lot of us that do criticize them inside, criticize other players when they when they beat them unfairly. Like Olympique Lyonnais has thrashed some of Olympique Lyonnais is the French women's team in Division One, and they're pretty much the huge makeup of the French national women's team. They've beaten teams in the French league like six nothing, but it doesn't it doesn't go beyond that. You know, I like, really a, appreciate this. Yeah, I really appreciate what you're saying, because um, because also I think it also deflects criticisms that I think are always worthwhile to be making against the United States and the the rampaging ugly American, which sometimes takes place certainly in international basketball, which which I've been critical of the men's before when they've been in situations like this. Well, for sure. The other thing that I wanted to say, and I think it's really important to note, that although I didn't get into the stadium, there was a lot of happiness that I saw. I saw men who had were just guys going to watch a women's soccer game who are American. And I liked that. I liked that there were people there who simply wanted to watch some really, really good football. And, you know, of course, because it's American, it's laced with that national pride and that American exceptionalism. But I was also at Japan versus Argentina on my first night. And Jessica and I watched that match and I wrote about it for SB Nation. And there was also a lot of French men that were just there watching games. There was a lot of families, a lot of young folks, but also I really liked seeing that when I was in France watching the Americans, there was a lot of people that you might not necessarily expect to be supporting the women's game and they were there. Mm. So I, I appreciated that. Now, Speaking of idiotic controversies, the other one that made it across the 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 the, the pond here was uh, Rapino and the national anthem and not singing the national anthem. Is that something that made its way across that anybody cared about in France? Well, yeah, there were, like I said, American journalists in France. It wasn't that I didn't hear about it as much, <laughs> but from what I understand, it's not incumbent upon her to sing. No, There's a lot of players. There's a lot of players, both sides, men and women, that don't sing the anthem. They stand there. She stood there. She was in line with her team. She did what she was supposed to. But I also feel that because Meg, like, Pina was under so much scrutiny for her actions before and her very clear support of Kaepernick. So if she sang or if she mouthed, they said that she wouldn't sing loud enough. If she didn't sing, they're going to say she didn't sing. If she, whatever she did, if she blinked through it, they'll say she blinked through it. That was disrespectful. So they're going to criticize her on this issue, no matter what. And when I mean they, I mean like people looking out to nitpick at Pino, who I believe is a huge part of the team in the way that her understanding of, you know, social justice, this is a person and, and her own goal celebration, notwithstanding, um, she had Audrey Lord on the back of her shirt when the team had a, like a dedication, like those jerseys, like that floored me. And she will 
she will guide the team in a way. She's having discussions as a white woman, as a queer white woman, because she's also from a marginalized community. But she will have discussions. And she talks about her privilege. And this is really important to me. And this is one of the reasons like, I absolutely love her. I absolutely love Pino for what she does, because she doesn't have to. And although allyship should matter, it doesn't come out in the way that we want it to. It also comes out performative. I really don't think she's like that. She's gotten death threats for what she's done. And I, in my eyes, and I'm not one to, like, I have a lot of American friends, like, who I dearly love, present company included, and who I respect. She is not doing this for show. She is probably one of the most truly exceptional Americans. And, and one who I would feel is a true, has that valor that is so often lacking in these spaces. Hmm. That's very well put. I hear you there. Um, to get to get to a little bit more fun subject before we let you go, and thank you so much for your time. I really do appreciate it, particularly given the whirlwind that you've been under the last couple of weeks. <laughs> like when you were in Paris, and as people were talking about the World Cup, was there any buzz around a particular team or player that you want to share with us? Well, I think that everyone is extremely excited for France. Like I was in France, and I will say this: that I did go to Reims for a day. And the amount of attention that Paris itself, the city, is giving the Women's World Cup is pitiful um, in comparison to smaller places. Like, um, I know that in Nice, it's far more, there's posters everywhere, that kind of thing. Paris is very dull in comparison. I do realize that the French Open, that Roland Garros has just finished, and I know there was a lot of attention there. But it doesn't mean you can't hype it up. There was a very, very small exhibition in one of the main malls. Um, and it was ridiculously small that that was the main exhibition for the Women's World Cup because it was a couple of posters. And I was like, no, clearly you don't understand what's happening. But clearly you don't care what's happening. So that disappointed me. So the discussions around that were not great in, in Paris. Like I was very disappointed. And these are some of the buzzes that, you know, some of us journalists from North America were having that it was quite sad. Um, in smaller places like in Lavre and in, like I said, in Reims, Valenciennes, there is way more attention to it. So as far as the team and the player goes, there's a lot of hype about France, and very, very rightly so. I mean, Wendy Renard is the captain of the French team. She's from Martinique originally, but she's French, and she's wonderful. She's her captain. She's a black woman. Um, she also had an own goal in their, in their match against Norway, which was terrible, but everyone's allowed one of those. Um, they still came out winning. There was a lot of excitement about it. Um, so definitely friends, like, of course, I love Canada and my eye is on Christine Sinclair to break the international record, beating Abby Wambach. Like, I, I think Sink will do it. I hope she does it. I'm really excited for it. Um, so eyes are a lot of eyes are on Christine Sinclair to break that record that's held by Abby Wambach currently. Um, in terms of other players, like just this morning, the Netherlands and, and today is Saturday, uh, Vivienne uh, Medima of the Netherlands. She is, you know, one that it's expected to win the golden boot, possibly I'll, I'll see because of Alex Morgan's goals. I don't know if that'll happen, but she's incredible. She plays for the Arsenal women's side. She's Dutch. Um, when they get together in formation and they work out structurally what they need to do, the Dutch are fantastic. They're really, really, really good. Now there's buzz about Bunny Shaw from Jamaica because she's exciting to watch and she's so young and that they don't have the experience and what they've been through. Now that the, uh, like the tournament has started there's a lot of talk about argentina 
there's a lot of talk about Vivian Correa, who is the Argentine goalie. She had twins um, in 2012, I believe, and retired and came out of retirement for this tournament. So Argentina held off Japan while I was there. It was a nil-nil draw. And I was astounded. Like, Japan are the, like, you know, the runners-up for the last World Cup. I thought that they would completely slash Argentina. That did not happen. So there's a lot of buzz, and I really like this, also about disparity and equal pay and support and resources. So it's not just about players. It's about the context, which I always think is really important. So it's a very long answer to your question. But I just love that people are having these deeper discussions. It's not just about one set player. It's about where where is this player? Where are they playing professionally? Did they get the support they need? Did, does their federation give a shit? So this kind of stuff I love hearing because it's so important when like sort of analyzing the women's game. Mm. By the way, as we were talking, I just got um, an email from an organization called Just Peace Act um, Advocates. Have you ever heard of them? That's starting an online uh, petition about Tannenbaum in Israel and not sending them. Interesting. So yes. people, are, people are already organizing around this. Of course, they're or- Toronto will organize. I mean, that's not gonna like that's not gonna go over well here. Like yeah. this isn't <laughs> this is it's a very multicultural, super diverse, very aware city that we live in also a lot of the players on the team are not like they're not like canadian like you know we've got internationals we've got americans we do have canadians but i just i don't know i i don't know what tannenbaum is thinking i actually never want to have a conversation to ask him you can do that dave but um i just think that's really bizarre there will absolutely be there was an organization i believe on twitter that night like i just think that even some of the writers i know in toronto there's very few that are of color and do sports, but that's not gonna, like my friend Andre Demis writes for McLean's and he was just like, no, nah, fam, like that's even, like I said, Ryan McMahon, who's indigenous was like, nope, we will do our best to make sure that doesn't happen. And I really firmly believe that that is the truth. Those of us that are here that love this team, like I, you know, send me that petition because I'd be happy to amplify it. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I just, I'll forward it to yeah. you. Maybe you could also help me decode it, like who these folks are. And what yeah, for sure. You never know. Um, I, I and speaking of this issue, I mean, I'd be really remiss, and I really do appreciate your time. But I, I want to hear how it went at the Diversity House. I mean, you were brought over there to speak. Uh, who was your audience? How did it go over? Uh, what was that like? Well, I think it was like I was really, you know, excited when it was brought to me to say, "Listen, this is what we're thinking of doing." Because I actually didn't think I would get to go to France at all. Um, and so I was thinking, okay, this is this might be possible. Um, and the timeline worked. I think it's also, this conversation is one that is not often had. I wrote a piece for Time Magazine, I think a week ago, two weeks ago. And it, it was just a conversation about how we can celebrate women's football, but also be acutely aware of what's happening in the fringes and in other parts of the world and how those women are struggling. There are sisters in soccer, but they're struggling. And... To have this conversation, so many people don't know that France still bans hijab on the pitch, and not simply for players, but for coaches, for officials. So you've got tons of women and girls that might want to get involved in the game somehow that are absolutely barred from doing this. And the reason that is used is laicité, which is a idea that it's not part of French values of keeping religious you know, symbolism off the pitch and keeping it neutral, like neutralité is the, is the concept. But what ends up happening is it's just simply, this is all an excuse for a really xenophobic and a racist approach 
Um, FIFA is not the most intelligent organization ever, but the fact that they actually did strike down this ban in 2014, I, I, I believe I came on your podcast to talk about mm-hmm. it the first time we spoke. Um, that is telling. And the fact that France refuses to even have discussions. Now, the worst part for me is that there are French feminists, like one very predominant one is named Annie Sugier. And as soon as the French ban, uh, sorry, the, the hijab ban was lifted by FIFA, they started mobilizing to say this is wrong. Women are being oppressed. Muslim women can't do this. Now, I also sat on this panel at Diversity House with a woman named Mariam Sibyl, who is a French feminist and works in an organization. She's a Muslim woman. And she does a lot of work around Islamophobia and how this affects people socially, like sociologically, rather. And it was really important to know like how much this is hurting because youth love football. Like to assume, to put a young woman in a position that you choose this, you choose faith or you choose football is not necessary. It's painful, especially when it's a football mad country. Everybody loves it. And you really take away that. And it's a question of identity then. You cannot be French if you do this on the pitch. So it's very, it's very bizarre. So to have this, I think it went really well. We had a, Stephanie Yang was there, Jessica was there. Our friend Laurent Dubois, who is a professor at Duke, was there. We had Beatrice Barbus, who's also a French feminist. She was there. And there are solidarity movements. Also, there was a woman there from Women Win, the international organization, who offered her unconditional support in this and like in, in support of this movement. So there is mobilization on the ground in France. And for me, being an outsider looking in, they don't get amplification in media because so few of us are in media. It's the same problem that you have in the United States. So if there's no spaces, they're not invited. And that's like these decisions that are made arbitrarily by men in boardrooms or white women in boardrooms, they don't include the voices of Muslim women at all, anywhere. And that's part of the problem. So this was an attempt to sort of try to get away from that. And you know, much of it was organized by an academic named Haifa Tili. And she's wonderful. And on the panel as well was my friend, Rim Sarah Alouan, who's a, like a PhD student and a jurist who studies French law. And it's so great to hear Rim talk because she will literally pick apart the French constitution and say, no, this doesn't make sense. You're using this, you're just using this as a means to support your ter- terrible position. It doesn't make sense. And she's sad, she's happy to go forward and charge the channel, challenge it in courts. So the next step is to sort of keep mobilizing, keep amplifying and just educating people on why this is so terribly fair, because it is. So mm. it's very, very, very happy to be a part of that discussion. That really sounds fantastic. Uh, Shireen, I really do appreciate the time. I mean, sincerely, given, given all you've been doing the last couple of weeks, thanks so much for joining us here on the podcast. Thank you so much for amplifying the way that I disrupt because, I mean, I really do appreciate that. Like, that's as much as we have to celebrate. There's always a need for disruption somewhere, and I no more so than women's women's soccer. And now with the Raptors, let's get ready to roll. Like, I mean, absolutely. Let's get, let's, let's get moving. You're one of our great disruptors. I learned that, Dave. Um, I think that that is something that I'm a proud community of, and I get support. What I need to do, and I'm so so grateful for that because none of what any of us do on the disruption side, the, having the platforms that we have, I get to work on mm-hmm. burn it all down with like some amazing women 
who mm-hmm. have these difficult discussions. And I'm so, so, so grateful for that. And, you know, got to wrap Burn It All Down with Prince as well. So that was really wonderful. Amazing. All right, well, be well, get some tea. Yep. And enjoy the World Cup and enjoy the parade. Yes, I will. Thank you so much, Dave. <laughs> Bye-bye. Bye, take care. We'll be back right after this, but first, a quick word from the sponsor of this podcast, The Nation Magazine. Okay, look, the need for independent journalism has never been more important, and The Nation brings it each and every week like they've been doing since 1865. I'm serious. This is what you got to read. It's The Nation magazine. Go to thenation.com slash subscribe. And please never forget that when you support The Nation magazine, you are also supporting the continued existence of this podcast. So please subscribe. Go to www.thenation.com slash subscribe. And now back to the Edge of Sports podcast. And now I got some choice words about Megan Rapinoe. Okay, look, the right wing is in a full lather right now over U.S. women's national team forward Megan Rapinoe standing for the national anthem, but not singing. I wish I was joking. Their sputtering anger across certain websites and social media is connected to Rapinoe's efforts to keep a mild promise. Rapinoe used to kneel during the anthem as a way to express solidarity with Colin Kaepernick, but that wasn't the only reason. She said back in 2016, Being a gay American, I know what it means to look at the flag and not have it protect all your liberties. It was something small that I could do and something that I plan to keep doing in the future and hopefully spark some meaningful conversation about it. Then, the U.S. Soccer Federation had itself a good old-fashioned hissy fit. First, they issued a statement demanding that everyone on the team stand for the anthem. Then they took the extraordinary step of codifying a policy requiring players to stand. Yes, compulsory expressions of freedom are always the most compelling. At the time, Rapinoe begrudgingly agreed to respect their diktat, although she also made a point to call it cowardly, saying, We can actually have a conversation instead of just telling me that it's a privilege to pull on the jersey. Like, of course it's a privilege for me to pull on the jersey. Part of that privilege is representing America, and representing America is representing all of America. That includes representing the part of America that America refuses to represent, the America being herded into internment camps and the America being denied basic civil and human rights under this venal administration. Rapino did, however, also promise that while she would stand for the anthem, she would not, in fact, sing. She said to Yahoo Sports, I'll never probably put my hand over my heart. I'll probably never sing the national anthem again. Her comment had a particular personal resonance for Rapino, who early in her career would belt out the words like she was three beers in the bag at a Mets game. This somewhat mild statement is her choice, her right. But once you're in the public eye, once you've become, in Rapino's own words, a walking protest, then the hate rolls down like waters. Right-wing blogs breathlessly reported that Rapino did not, in fact, heaven forfend, sing. Ham-faced Twitter commenters and their egg counterparts were in a rage, saying that if you don't support the anthem, you have no business on the national team. And I would strongly bet that at least half of these folks are in the bathroom or online at concessions when the anthem rings. It says Rapino said in May to Yahoo Sports, 
I feel like it's kind of defiance and of itself just to be who I am and wear the jersey and represent it. Because I'm as talented as I am, I get to be here. You don't get to tell me if I can be here or not. So it's kind of a good F you to any sort of inequality or bad sentiments that the Trump administration might have towards people who don't exactly look like him. Which, God help us if we all looked like him. Scary. Really scary. Colin Kaepernick very much inspired me and inspired an entire nation and still does to actually think about these things. Now, Rapino's rebellious posture has all the more weight given this administration's attacks on the LGBTQ community, from adoption to citizenship to even forbidding embassies around the world from flying a rainbow flag during Pride. In addition, they have to endure the daily presence of noted unapologetic homophobe Mike Pence sitting at the controls of a Christianist agenda aimed at shoring up the last bastion of Trump's support. This country is making it very clear that they do not stand with Megan Rapino. She is making it crystal clear in response that protest and using the platform of sports to express that protest will be her method of response. This will be the case until that flag actually serves to protect her rights, as well as the rights of anyone who finds themselves betrayed by the gap between what this country purports to represent and all people's actual lived experiences. We'll be back right after this with a quick word from Edge of Sports. Hey everybody out there, this is Dave Zirin with the Edge of Sports podcast. People got to know that we put this podcast on with elbow grease and and bubble gum on a weekly basis. And we're proud of the work that we do. We love it, but we can't do it without support from you, the listener. So please go to patreon.com slash edgeofsportspod and support the podcast. That's patreon.com slash edgeofsportspod. Any little bit you might give to support the podcast actually makes a huge difference to the work we're trying to do. That's patreon.com slash edgeofsportspod. We appreciate you. Make no mistake about it. And now, back to the Edge of Sports podcast. And now it's time for the Just Stand Up Award. Just stand up and just sit your ass down. The Just Stand Up Award goes to Kyle Lowry, the Raptor for life, maybe the future Prime Minister of Canada. I'm just such a sucker for quotes like this. This is what Kyle Lowry said when he was asked about pressure in the NBA Finals. The definition of pressure what you think of when you hear that, what it means to you? Um, what my mom had to go through and my grandmom had to go through feeding myself, my brother, my, little, my cousin, my, my, my little cousins, my other little cousins, you know, going to work, getting up at five in the morning and getting up and going to work and making me cereal, having a bowl of cereal, sitting in the refrigerator with some milk and being able to provide for me and my brother and my family. That's pressure. That's pressure to me. And just the willing to do whatever it takes to make sure that your kid will see better than what you've ever seen. Um, And getting up and taking public transportation an hour and a half away. You know, and people like that are, you know, heroes to me. And just going to work and grinding and doing whatever it takes to um, provide for your family and, you know, protect who you have to protect. 
That's Kyle Lowry. I, I've actually played similar quotes from people like Damian Lillard when asked about pressure who've said similar things where they speak back to their working class roots. And like I said, I am just a stone cold sucker for comments like that. Uh, comments that put sports in its proper perspectives and actually shed some light on the backgrounds of these players. So shout out to Kyle Lowry, shout out to the Toronto Raptors, and shout out to that statement. The Just Sit Your Ass Down Award. Sit your ass down! Gee, I could give it to some of the people we spoke about with Sharina Med, either the Toronto Raptors uh, managing partner, Mr. Tannenbaum, who wants to take the team to Israel. Uh, and violate all manner of boycotts uh, to do so. Or I could do it to the Oakland police who tried to keep Masai Ujiri off the court after the game, basically profiling him and carding him before he could get on the court. But instead this week, I think I want to give it to Baker Mayfield, the star second-year quarterback for the Cleveland Browns, for the way he talks smack about teammate Duke Johnson's contract situation. Now, Duke Johnson, if you don't know him, is, even though he's only been in the league a couple years, the longest-serving veteran on the Cleveland Browns roster, practically. He's the hardest-working player, he's the heart and soul of the team, and he's asked to be traded because the team signed Kareem Hunt, uh, who was suspended the first part of the year because of violence against women. And this is what Baker Mayfield said. He said, The situation surrounding Duke Johnson is not awkward. No, it's self-inflicted. It is what it is. That's not awkward for anybody else in this building. He's got to do his job. He said he's professional. I hope he does his job. Now, for the second-year quarterback to say this, I mean, that was a no-no of the first order. It's kind of like the first rule of Fight Club. You know, first rule of Fight Club is you don't talk about Fight Club. First rule of the NFL is you don't comment on a teammate's situation or on their money. You don't do it. Now, Baker Mayfield was reportedly approached by several veteran Browns players in the locker room who expressed their displeasure after he made those critical comments. This is all according to the NFL Network's Michael Silver. Basically, they approached Baker Mayfield and they corrected him. They told him, don't talk about Duke, don't talk about his money, mind your business, and remember, you've only been here a year yourself, and if you don't want to lose this locker room, if you don't want to lose this huddle, you better not be a scab and side with management when it comes to this basic law of solidarity in the NFL. And that basic law is, you don't talk about someone else's contract, you don't talk about someone else's money. Don't be a scab, Baker Mayfield. Learn the lesson. Boom. And just sit your ass down, at least for now. Well, that's all the time we have for this week's show. Thank you so much, Sharina Med, for joining us. Uh, thank you so much to uh, Megan Rapino for continuing your strong stance. Thank you to everybody out there listening. I want to make a big plea for people to go uh, to our Patreon page, patreon.com slash edgeofsportspod. I want to make a big plea for everybody to support the promoter and financer of this podcast, The Nation Magazine. Go to thenation.com. I want to make a big plea for everybody to go to iTunes and write a little comment, do a little review. Anything you do actually helps us produce this podcast. For everybody out there listening, please stay frosty. We are out of here. Peace.